Dana Saperstein here. I want to thank you all for listening to our podcast. Kim and I are extremely grateful. I want to remind everyone that one of the main reasons that Kim and I do the podcast is to show what it looks like for men to be emotionally vulnerable. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or comments at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you. What does Oklahoma, the sound of music, South Pacific, all that jazz, and L.A. story have in common? They're all part of an extraordinary entertainment family. Our guest today is Peter Melnick, who followed his famous family's roots into the musical business and created his own success story, not only professionally, but personally. So please join us as we chat with Peter, not only about his family, but how music played an important role in shaping his life's journey, along with healing the traumas he encountered along the way. Peter is a fascinating storyteller that eloquently shares the highs and lows of his life. We hope that you enjoy our conversation with Peter Melnick. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. Peter, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So uh, music uh, is in your DNA, and uh, you're a descendant of, uh, of, of, I guess, music royalty. So why don't you kind of describe uh, your background to the listeners that may not be familiar with your name? Well, my, um, my mother was an incredible musician, probably the, the deepest musician in the family, composer, brilliant composer, amazing pianist, perfect pitch. Her father was Richard Rogers, my grandfather, theater composer. Um, and uh, I grew up on his music. I grew up on her music. Um, music's always been part of my world. Did you have a relationship with your grandfather? Yeah. I mean, he, he lived until I was 20. Um, and so he was, he was about 56 when I was born. Um, and 56 was a lot older than, than 56 is today. So he was, um, and he was, his, his longtime partner, Oscar Hammerstein, died when I was about two and a half, three. Uh, and I think that was a devastating blow for my grandfather. And from where I sit, he was kind of, uh, he was already a little bit older than he should have been. And, and he died in the end of 79. So, I had a, a kind of a sweet but not very close relationship with him, but he was a very important part of my life. I, I saw my grandparents a fair amount. So I, I'm guessing that you grew up in the theater. Um, you, your father was? My father was tone deaf, but okay. probably one of my biggest musical influences because uh, you know, he, would, he would turn me on to things I never would have listened to. He sent, when I was in music school, he sent me this nine-record set called Einstein on the Beach by Philip Glass. Um, who's a minimalist. It's a, it's a very particular sign of, kind of music. And I listened to the first uh, first half hour. Is it okay to swear on here? No, absolutely. I, I listened to the first side of it, and I called him up and I said, why'd you send me this shit? And, <laughs> and he said, um, 
I get it, but I think you should listen a second time. It will repay uh, your interest. And how old were you when he sent this to you? Oh, I was 22, maybe. Oh, okay. Um, and I listened a second time, and I would say for about four years, I was really heavily in the throes of minimalism, especially Philip Glass, whose music I still love. So my dad was really creative, tone deaf, um, and an extraordinary film producer. Um, so, uh, I mean, he, he was somebody who, p people who know his era in, in filmmaking um, speak of him with tremendous reverence because he was, he was quite extraordinary. Um, so I got it from both sides, but the music was my mom's side. So I know I had mentioned at the introduction that music runs through your DNA, but weren't you originally, um, you had gone to college in journalism and wanted to be a writer? Well, um, I went to Harvard where they don't have a journalism program. Okay. They have the Harvard Crimson, which which was boot camp. It was, it was, I mean, I learned a lot about writing from that. Um, basically, from when I was six until I went to college, I kind of always intended to be in music. Um, and uh, knew that my mom really thought that was a bad idea. And so my first two years at college were the one time in my life when I tried on for size the idea that I, I shouldn't do it, I'm, I'm not doing it. Um, and I aspired to be a fiction writer, and um, in at the end of my first year, seeking some viable alternative to dropping a lot of acid with my roommates, <laughs> I went out one day for the Harvard Crimson. And... Uh, it was really on a lark. It was unplanned, and it changed my life. So I, I, I got on the Crimson. Throughout my sophomore year, I, I wrote a lot and decided that summer to try and try my hand at freelancing and uh, ended up getting hired by the Navajo Times. Uh, I, I was doing a story based on Navajo mineral development and resources and also a story on Tom Hayden and Campaign for Economic Democracy out here. Uh, at one point... I'd already established relations at the Navajo Times and uh, then went out to California and was crashing with my dad who lived in, in, in Hollywood, near Hollywood, and was meant to be interviewing Hayden in Santa Barbara as it happened at his wife Jane Fonda's summer camp. I got there and she said, I'm so sorry you're being stood up. My husband is out in a fishing boat with my father. That would have been Henry Fonda. Mm -hmm. Would you like to interview me instead? And I thought about it for maybe a second and said, yes, please. <laughs> um, and yeah. she, Let's see, Jane Fonda. Let me think about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it was, the place was a, was a trip. It was amazing. The, was that the one off of San Marcos Pass? I don't, I don't know where it was because I didn't know Santa Barbara. Okay. It, was, it was way up in the hills. You wound up in the hills. And, and the day I was, the, the, first, the, first of all, the guy who was cooking for the camp was a former SDS. He'd been a weatherman, actually, who'd been on the yeah. run for a while. Oh, interesting. Um, and, uh, and the day that uh, I was there... Paul Winter, Paul Winter was there with a guy who was touring with with a wolf pup, and so all the ki the kids there were a combination of Hollywood liberal royalty and farm worker kids. Uh, it was actually a pretty cool camp. Um, so I got to I got to get to, to to see the camp's workings a bit, and then I, then uh, Jane Fonda gave me this wonderful interview. And knowing I hadn't done my homework for it, she she pretty much at, she'd say, "And I bet you'd like to know how." <laughs> yes. So it was a great interview. Yeah. Um, so I worked for the Navajo Times for a year. They, 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 they were so excited by the interview I did with Jane Fonda because the editor of the Navajo Times was kind of starstruck. Um, I'd like to tell you he thought my writing was amazing, so he offered me a job. It was more like, you know Jane Fonda? Would you like to work here? <laughs> so I, I worked there for the, a fair amount of the year until um, I pretty much got all the Anglos in the paper, myself included, fired because I wrote an expose 
on the tribal chairman, Peter McDonald, Pete McDonald, who turned out to who eventually went to jail for embezzlement. But the editor of the paper wasn't so sophisticated, and he neglected the fact that the publisher of the paper was the tribe. So he ran the piece. They fired all the white people in the paper. And um, at that point, rather than going back to Harvard, where I had yet to do my junior year, I decided to take a year off making music with a, a friend who just graduated college. We moved to Tucson, where some friends were in a really great band. And after a year, I went back to Harvard for what turned out to be my last year there, my junior year. Um, moved into the social studies department, got some social science skills, and wrote music for a production of Twelfth Night. Uh, and kind of, no, Winter's Tale, I beg, beg your pardon, Winter's Tale. Um, and kind of fell in love with writing music. I mean, I, I kind of thought, oh my God, I, I have to give this a shot. And uh, I remember my dad came in from the, from the West Coast to see it, and it was performed at, in Radcliffe Yard outdoor on the mm -hmm. sunny day. And afterwards he said, you know, this Shakespeare guy, he could really use some editing, but the music was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, there was your validation right that's there. That's very sweet. Yeah. And, um, and so that summer, halfway through the summer, on the eve of my senior year at Harvard, I had this kind of crisis, and I thought, oh my God, if I, if I go to Harvard and then go to music school, I've already taken off two years, I'll be an old man of 27, must drop out now. And uh, told my mother, who was so, so upset with me that she couldn't talk to me for about three months. I got a feeling we'll touch on what went into that statement later on. But uh, she had a very hard time with it because of her, her experience. Uh, and my father's advice was wonderful, which was, you know, the only way you're going to find out is to explore it. And even if you find out it's not for you, you will have had a wonderful experience discovering it. You got to go for it. So, so your mom was still hoping that you would have stuck with that journalism path. Anything but music. Just anything but music. Yeah. Now, why was she so concerned about you having a musical career? Well, I mean, this is this is where the story begins to get interesting. Yeah. Um, and um, we like interesting. Okay. Um, maybe to frame it first, I know bef before we started the tape rolling, you, um, I said something which you, you were hoping I might fall into. It would frame this conversation, so I'm going to uh, just introduce it myself, which is in recent years I've become very, very aware of the ways in which damage from one generation filters through to the next generation and it colors the lives from generation to generation. Um, trauma, damage, and my own experience is also that it's, damage isn't a life sentence. Trauma is not a life sentence. There's the possibility of healing from it. And one of the most powerful things that, that, that to me is, has enabled me to, to grow and heal in my own ways is to understand what's come before. To, to realize if, if there are certain things that used to make me get tense, get angry, get feel attacked, feel threatened, wh whatever choices I made. If you don't understand what, what's driving them, it's like an invisible hand on the steering wheel. And once you begin to see it, you have the ability to step back and think, oh, maybe that's not what I need to be doing, or you just there's more insight. Um, it's also let me look at people who were extremely difficult um, with understanding to, to, to get what produced who they are. And so th this, there, there are huge benefits to that. Did, did that thought process just come to you one day or has that been an evolved journey through your time of writing music and composing? It, a huge journey. Um, I, I'd say a journey before I knew I was on a journey. Um, everything in life takes you to the next step, not to get too philosophical, but 
the thing which really put me onto the journey in, in a very focused way was um, when one of my kids um, had gone into a, um, a a place called the Meadows for um, really it, it's a place where you can do serious work on trauma um, and there's a family week because no no young person gets to trauma without there's parents in some way in, in the picture um, and my experience during that family week awakened me to not only some of some of the ways in which I'd had a role in in my my kids trauma uh, and I'm 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 being very circumspect here because they have privacy and I don't want to absolutely go there. absolutely but it also began helping me understand I mean both my kids uh, who were there that week looked at me um, and said well y- your relationship with with our mother was totally codependent and I began to, to understand what I began to have to understand what codependency was um, where where it comes from uh, I began to understand a lot about about me uh, and that really began a conscious process I didn't it wasn't that a bell went off that day and said aha I'm going to become obsessed with the subject of trauma and healing but that's kind of what happened and um, and now I find that this this looking at the world through the prism of of damage and trauma and how it impacts um, has enabled it, it's it's one of the biggest prisms through which I look at people in general and understand the world um, and I realize that there's if you look at everything through one model uh, you're going to miss out you can't reduce everything to to any single model any any symbol symbol single single explanation for people's behavior. But that said, it's a very powerful one. Um, it a- allows me to understand people who are damaging differently, understand ways in which in my life I have been drawn to damaging situations, ways in, ways in perhaps I have not pushed myself to accomplish things which I probably always was, was capable to. I just didn't believe in myself enough. Um, and to all, understand all that without regret, because... I'm more interested in uh, in the freedom I feel today and the ongoing journey. When, when you made the comment about not believing in yourself, I can imagine there's a lot of pressure in a family like yours that comes from musical royalty here in the United States. And, and maybe, maybe I'm just assuming, and maybe that wasn't the case. But, I mean, did you have that pressure upon yourself in, in terms of, of making your own inroads into success in life, whether that was in journalism or in, or in music? Actually, no. Okay. It's, it's, it's a really good assumption. Um, um, <laughs> Pretty but, common assumption, I would imagine. In, in fact, in a way, my, my mother's need not to, not, I mean, her inability to be supportive uh, sheltered me from that to a huge extent. It was much easier to be the grandson of Richard Rogers than the daughter of. And then her inability to to support you in terms of your musical interest or anything in life. Oh no, she she she. Look, I I knew that B pluses weren't good, and it wasn't because A's are an absolute. It was because I got so tired of hearing it. You're capable of so much better. Your teachers tell us that you're capable of so. Yeah. It was. I mean, I knew I knew that they were onto me. Um, and I was, you know, uh, I went to a, a progressive New York private school, Dalton, um, and I was pretty much a B-ish kind of a student. Uh, I went, I went to boarding school, Choate, um, ninth through twelfth grade, and 
the, the bestest thing about that was it got me out of the house. My parents had divorced two years earlier and my mom was, uh, <laughs> therein hangs a tale. My mom was now married to the man who had been her psychiatrist and my father's psychiatrist. And although he didn't see kids, he made an exception and he saw me. So oh, all three he, of you saw the same psychiatrist and then it, your mom married him? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, he was also 25 <laughs> years older than her. That's wild. Um, and um, it, it was, it was, a horrific situation. Um, and I was really happy to be out of the house. I can imagine. So I'm sure in some ways saved my life. Uh, so this was happening all during your teenage years. Yeah. My folks split up when I was 12. I went to Choate when I was 14. Um, and it was, it, my folks divorce was really, really bad. Uh, she, she was hurt. I mean, my dad was not really good at monogamy. Um, but, but in her anger and, and, fueled by this this man who was something of a Svengali, um, she, he nursed her hurt to a, a phenomenal degree. And she basically, together, they said, you know, your father's incapable of love, your father's a, a psychopath, a sociopath. And um, do you think he'd even let you hang out with him if you weren't a cute kid? So part of, I mean, there was no question of not choosing sides. Psychologically, survival meant believing mommy. Yeah. And... Because he pathologized the situation to his benefit. Yeah. And um, so my mother was very, very angry. And, and she said things. She impugned my dad's honesty, his capacity for love. He had no capacity for love, she said. Um, and I was angry at him. But he also, around, the, around 71, when I was 13, he got hired. He'd been a film producer based in New York. Um, he got hired to run MGM and moved to California. And what that meant was my hostility. And I was, I was a poster's child for sullen, angry adolescence. I was not really fun to spend time with with him. But I loved it. I loved being with him anyway. I just didn't know how much I loved it. And when I would visit with him, he was magnificent. He, would, he, he made time for me in ways that I can look back on now and appreciate. But he just did it. And, um, and all the while was the question in my mind, do you love me? Because you know, I, I had... I, was told consciously he doesn't um but some part of me i think always knew he did and um those were wonderful years and, and let me ask you i don't want me to interrupt that train of thought but it's interesting when that seed gets planted in your conscious or your subconscious right and you're thinking god do i really believe that or not dane and i talk a lot about faith and intuition mm-hmm. and you know and it's a feeling mm-hmm. right so you had that feeling, you kind of had that feeling your dad actually loved you, right? Whether you're trying to talk yourself out of it or talk yourself into it or not, but you had that feeling. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. But but see, his line to me about everything my mother was, was saying about him and everything Nat, the, the psychiatrist, was saying was, there's another side to this story, but I'm not. you don't have to hear it if you don't want to. And if you ask me any questions, I'll try and answer them honestly, but you don't have to hear my side. Which at the time, I, in my adolescent absolutism, I said, well, that, that must prove what they all said about you. You're convicted. Um, and by the time I figured out that that wasn't true, I no longer had to ask questions about him at all. Um, what I now understand was, first of all, he, he saw psychiatrists and therapists himself to understand how to protect me and to understand what was happening. And there was no greater gift he could have given me than what he did by saying that he protected me from being turned he in the Solomonic story he didn't split the baby 
And right. I think if anything has made me made me able to survive it, it was that. So how did you how did you figure out the truth? I was so hoping you'd ask that question. In my second year at Harvard, I um, University Health Services announced there there were there was going to be a short term group therapy group formed six six session group, um, for whatever. It was, I don't think there was a, a very specific purpose, um, and it was it was for men. It was Harvard College, not Har- not Radcliffe Women, and. I was motivated to go to it because I had some idea in my head that I wasn't, I wasn't being the way a man is supposed to be. Also ideas I got from Nat, the awful mm-hmm. psychiatrist. He pointed to a friend of mine who's still a friend of mine today um, and said, when, when Steve walks into a room, that's a real guy. Now, Steve was getting laid at the age of 12. And there, was, there was no question. <laughs> he was a real guy. <laughs> he, was, he definitely was. And, and Steve's a lovely guy. He, he's very male, but also very sweet, gentle male one of my oldest friends. But so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not picking up women. I'm not doing all these mixed up ideas I had about what it's supposed to be to be a guy. And that was what carried me into the group. And the more I, and one of the, cause I'd seen that for the therapist for quite a few years. And probably the, the best thing I got from him, cause even from pretty much evil people, you can learn something. And the best thing I got from him was shit the world if you must, but don't ever shit yourself. Um, and so I kind of have always been, I've internalized that. You know, self-honesty is a, is a very deep value. And so I, the more I tried in this group to, to spill the beans on me, they'd say things like, well, what made you think you were supposed to be asking that, that, that girl, that woman out? I mean, or what made you think you were supposed to, it was supposed to go beyond dinner? Because I felt like it was part of my inadequacy that I didn't wind up in bed with this person who, mm. um, and... Uh, so I, I'd say, I don't know. And they say, but by the way, tell us about this guy you keep on talking. Who's this Nat guy? And the logic of the group, the dynamic was such that they kept on, the more I tried to spill the beans myself, the more they tried to, they, the more they showed me that this guy was a problem. And after six sessions, I was really clear. I'd figured out who he was. It, it kind of, it cracked the, the, the thing open. And at that point, I knew, I knew how much I loved my dad. That was, that was Mayor June. So you did what most people do is assume that you're the problem. And what these people helped you realize is that what happened to you and what didn't happen for you was really the problem. Right. And it sounds like that opened some doors for you to really develop a strong, stronger bond and love for your father. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I, I, I remember I, I was heading out west to, for my summer of freelancing. I had a car, a car wreck. I totaled my car and wound up. Um, in Marion, Virginia, in a hotel with a, a completely flattened car. I, I mean, I walked away from it unscathed. Wow. Um, and uh, as I was twitching off to bed that night, you know, my legs are going this way and that because I went off the freeway at 70 miles an hour. Wow. Um, wound up in a retired state trooper's backyard, by the way. Okay. Um, and um, the thought that kept me through my head was, thank God I didn't die because my dad wouldn't have known how much I love him. Oh, hmm. okay. And, you know, for, for the rest of my life, uh, my dad was very complicated. He was he he died in the end. Technically, the, the, the death certificate said uh, cardiac arrest, addiction. He 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 had a, a massive addiction problem. He couldn't he couldn't escape. What was he addicted to? Um, probably the, the drug that killed him the best was coke. Oh, okay. Um, but he 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 did a lot of ketamine. Um, he did a lot of other drugs. Um, but. Coke was really the thing that did him in. But so see, he was complicated and, and there are things that he did that, you know, 
I, I know we're, we're, we're lousy. I could, I, I'm not going to talk at length about him now, but I could see, I could see him in, in all dimensions without judgment. And none of the bad stuff he did touched my love for him. I touched my general assessment of, that he was, in fact, uh, an extraordinary human being who, who, had, who really had no capacity to love himself, didn't understand. I mean, there were probably eight amazing women in his life at different times. I mean, women who were extraordinary themselves, brilliant, powerful, in their, in their personal, in, in, in their energy, and in, and in their accomplishments. Sherry Lansing, who went on to be the first woman to run Paramount Studios. Um, just a whole bunch of amazing women um, who loved him. And long out, they were all at his, they were all but the last one were at his memorial service. The last one was still too, too broken up to, to be there. He was well-loved. Um, he was well-loved by his friends. And in a business that's, that's really full of a lot of, a lot of people who are, are instrumental with one another and, he he had a, a deep sense of loyalty and 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 the people who were there really really cared for him. He was extraordinary. Sounds like he was a re- really remarkable and complicated person. He was. He and was. what about your preteen years? Um, what, what, I mean, it sounds like when when their marriage fell apart, things were really uh, difficult. What about yeah. when you were a little kid? Well, you know, he was of the madman generation. Oh, okay. Um, dads weren't were not. The norm wasn't for them to be hands-on. Some some dads were just by nature, but but it was much more normal, especially if you were young and ambitious and in a very creative world. Um, he and I never threw a ball, um, okay. which is fine by me at this point because I, I you know um, I'm I'm not I got athletic credit in high school for taking piano lessons, <laughs> but um, but so I would say. I can't really give you a good sense of how much time he spent with me. I would say it wasn't a lot, but it was enough. And my feeling is the big surprise when I when I came to look back at my childhood as as a as a an older adult is that I think I sustained much more damage in my relationship with my mother. They were both damaged people. They both carried a lot of damage. Right. But hers for reasons we might find ourselves talking about had more of an impact on me. And the thing which I discovered about my dad really in more recent years when I've gone back to, I'm writing a book about my family. And when I when I began to really research him, also toward the end of his life, I, I, I discovered something which I didn't log in before. Part of his trauma was that his dad died in a car accident when he was nine. Oh, yeah. And he told a story that's very telling. Um, what happened was his father his father was driving he was in a solo, a single car spinoff. He, 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 the car rolled over several times and he drove home. And uh, a day later, he's beginning to feel bad. Two days later, he's feeling really crummy and he gets to the hospital. Um, it turned out, I think he had a perforated duodenal ulcer. And by the time he got to the hospital, um, it was too late. His, his widow, my grandma, grandmother, sa- uh, said basically it was, it was a death born of poverty because you didn't go to a doctor if you didn't absolutely have to because... He was scraping by, and he thought he was okay. Um, my dad was sent to stay with an uncle and his family when he went into the hospital. And there were cousins. And dad, at this point, he's a nine-year-old. And the story he told was that one of his cousins uh, collected stamps, and dad stole a stamp. And 
shortly thereafter, the phone rings, and it's the uncle who calls to speak to him and says, Danny, I have to tell you, your father just died. And the link is forged. And what that says, if you think about it, is, first of all, if you doing something could cause your father's death, you must be very powerful and very bad. Wow. I don't know if the story is true. If it isn't, or if it's an embellishment, it's revealing nonetheless. And oh. I, I think, the, and what I, what I put, I knew the story before, but what I put together eventually was that my grandfather, Ben, was actually a pretty great father. And my dad adored him. And so the loss was huge. And also, it put another piece in place. Dad had a role model and a loving father. And the thing which people who knew him have told me about him, I, I had dinner with, a, with an, a friend, old friend of his uh, two nights ago with my wife, Talia. And the, and the old friend, Howard Rosenman, uh, said, do you know how much your father adored you? He, and, and I've heard this from so many people. And when I was a kid, I would be, I'd dismiss it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he did. He absolutely adored me. And, and now I understand why. It was in his bones. Right. And what about your mom? Oh, she loved me very much too. Okay. Um, but it's a very different story. And, and, and I, it's easier to identify his trauma and easier to give you the story. Um, this part is a little bit more complicated. Um, I'll, try and, I'll try and come into a little, a little section of it. Um, she was born in 35. She was the second daughter of Richard and Dorothy Rogers. Their first daughter, Mary, was born in January of 31. Uh, my grandfather, I think, and, and, and my grandmother got pregnant like six weeks after they got married. They're off on their, on their honeymoon in Europe, and the idea is they're going to have this wonderful tour of Europe and then end up in London where he's going into rehearsals with Larry Hart with a show called Evergreen. Actually, it's not rehearsals yet. It's, 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 it's development. Um, she gets in, she, she finds herself, by the time they get to London, she's having what turns out to be morning sickness. She has a really difficult pregnancy. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's, they didn't expect to get pregnant so early, but... He's pretty excited. It turns out he was actually pretty looking forward to having kids. Um, but the pregnancy is a disaster. I mean, she, the baby's born safe and, and healthy in the end, but pregnancy, she, she has a terrible pregnancy. P.S., my grandfather's older brother is a newly anointed OBGYN, and the huge pressure on my grandmother is he's going to be your doctor. And nobody says to her, if you don't feel good about this, maybe you should say no. It's not a possibility. So she is, she's feeling ill. She's now got uh, Morty Rogers poking around where she doesn't want to poke around. <laughs> um, and then when they get back from England to America, he has to leave for the West Coast where they're about to start writing for film. And she can't go, she's too sick. And then when he comes back, he has, again, he has to go to England to, to be in And the correspondence between them when, uh, when he's on the boat going to England and when he's in England in rehearsals, uh, is transformative in their relationship and devastating. Um, he learns he learns it's not okay to to talk about the baby, the impending, because you know she she's she she's she doesn't accept it. She's angry. Um, basically, the, the, the dynamics of their relationship begin getting very very complicated here. 
Um, but there's, you know, he, he writes to her, this is very abstract, there's a, he writes to her in one letter um, from the ship crossing. And it turns out he, he, this is another story, but he suffered from profound depression um, and drank to try and self-medicate. The thing which really gave him shelter from depression was theater. When he was in theater, he almost never suffered depression, and he, and that was his place of joy. So he writes her. He has a dream on the boat, and he says, "In the dream, the baby's born, and it's you and me and the baby. And I hold the baby up, and the baby reaches out to me, and kisses me in the face. Do you think that's possible, darling? I mean, and he's describing this baby with so much love, and says, "Of course." But he's, he hastens to say, "But of course, I'll always love you more." Um, and. But he describes this in a way that it's it. There's palpable yearning for this. He's describing this loving family moment, and it's part of who he was that had to get tamped down for all kinds of reasons. Fade. That's thirty-one when Mary is born, and my mom is born in March of thirty-five. By which time they're they're back from living in California. They're be- Theater's beginning to come back alive. It's the depression, um, and he's got. He's very, very busy. He is. He is huge in the theater world, and uh, so his time is is, is limited. Uh, by the time Mama's four, she, her musical talent is extraordinary, and it begins to really emerge. Mary's got musical talent, but it's not like Mom's. Mary will go on to be extraordinary in her own way. She writes um, once. A, she writes once upon a mattress as a composer which is still done. Um, so whatever, I, I, I don't think it's an extraordinary work musically, but it's a piece of, it's a, it's a piece of theater that's still revived. So you got to give her that. But she also wrote Freaky Friday, one of the seminal children's books of all time, one of the delightful oh. children's books. Mary was very smart and very funny and very talented, but words didn't emerge till later. And literally that, that household was built on, on music. And my, my understanding of my grandparents was my grandmother really didn't, didn't, she didn't like being a mother. She was rejecting of her kids. I loved her as a grandmother, but she was really a, an unloving mother. The only love that was going in the household really for those two kids was my grandfather's. And it was genuine. They both, they both say this about him. They felt his love for them was real, but it was very compartmentalized. 10 minutes here and then it was almost like a, a, a piece of china put back in the cupboard. Now I'm back to work and you're off. And the thing was, when my mother began to emerge as having this quite extraordinary musical talent, that became a point of connection for the two of them. Yeah. And I think her older sister, Mary, she's, she's struggling to get oxygen in that household. She's struggling to have anybody validate her existence. And Mary was a very big personality. That must have been extraordinarily tough. Um, so there was a seminal event. I warned you there's a long story here someplace. There's a seminal event that happened when my mom was about four. She told her parents, I made some music up. I want to play it for you. And so one afternoon, they sat and, and, she, and she went to the piano. Feet don't even hit the floor when she's on the bench. And she plays this piece. Um, and the penultimate note is at the way at the bottom end. She reaches down and she plays the low note. And then she slides off the piano and she walks around the back of it. She was aware it was theatrical. And she hits the final note, which is a really high little tink. And that's the last note, and her parents burst into roars of laughter. Mom described it as the one moment in her life, the one memory she has of both of them being genuinely, really happy with her. 
And it's a lovely moment. Part two of the story is the next afternoon, Mary's up in her room and mom is, and my grandmother's with Mary. And Mary has a meltdown and says, she's ruined my life. You know, because Mary, Mary, she takes piano lessons, she's striving. Mom was somebody who, who for three years fooled her teacher by didn't think she was learning, how, she'd learned how to read music. She'd had to say to the teacher about the new piece that was assigned, would you just play it for me once so I can hear how it's supposed to, and her ear was so extraordinary that until she got well past Bach minuets and fugues and things, she could play She could play from memory back what she heard once. As a four-year-old? No, but, oh. but she started taking piano at, I guess, five. Oh, but okay. she went until she was eight, and she'd been taking lessons for, for like three years. She could do that, and, and eventually they discovered and she learned how to read music. Uh, at one point, uh, the people at Manus School of Music uh, told her parents that she could concertize. Um, but what... So, so she was extraordinary, and Mary was eclipsed. And... What my grandmother told Mary, and the only reason I could know this is because somebody told somebody else. Granny, I think Granny told my mother. But what Granny said to Mary was, you couldn't do more to create toxic sibling rivalry for the ages. She said, there, there, Mary. I'm sure Linda doesn't mean to lord her talent over you. It both, it both, uh, says your sister is lording her talent over you, and it says your sister's that talented. My mother, the little sister, always wanted Mary's approval, but what she learned when she heard that that same thing from her mother was that thing you do so well, that thing you love, whenever you do it, you are hurting your sister. So music for my mother was instantly a matter of complex feelings. It was her great joy. She She was at peace when she played music and when she made music like no other time in her life and it was clouded so that's part of the answer but also my mom as she's growing up begins to figure out that her you know her father's the source of love and he's missing in action and she by the time she's a late teenager she's begun to, to form her own judgment which is for my mother the world was divided into people who are real authentic and the superficial. Superficial are, was, was one of the word, her code words for people who, for example, sell out your family by doing superficial things like, I don't know, making musicals. So she thought he gave up on his, he, he betrayed his family to pursue his career. And I didn't understand any of this as a kid. Um, what I thought as a kid was, because she, 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 I've gotten to know the music she wrote. She gave up writing music when I was about two. And the music she wrote before that um, including she wrote with uh, Mike Stewart, who went on to write the lyrics for Hello, Dolly. She, she had the imagination to, to take this book by T.S. Eliot called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, and she said it, um, and tried to get the rights to, to, to turn it into a show, and Eliot's widow didn't give it to her. He was smart. He eventually gave it to this guy named Andrew Lloyd Webber, and it became Cats. <laughs> right. Um, but, but, and Mom also said about a bunch of A.A. Milne, her music was really... Wonderful and very special. I mean, she sound she she actually wrote Rogers tunes that fooled Rogers' friends into thinking that they were his. She did it once on a lark, and played had friends of his over for dinner one night, mutual friends, and had a, a, a new lyric of Oscar's that um, he hadn't set yet, and she said it and she played it for the friends, 
And afterwards, they, and she, she should have told them, she really should have told them afterwards that she'd written it. But they called up my grandmother and said, oh, we had a lovely evening with Dick and with Danny and Linda. And I loved the new song. And when they found out what she'd done, my grandfather didn't say anything. He just, he was stony. And my grandmother ripped her a new one. Um, and what I assumed was he didn't take enough interest to say to her, of course you sound like me. Keep on writing through, keep on writing. You're going to sound like you. You can't help it. You're talented. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe because he didn't encourage her, she turned it away from it. I don't think that was it at all now. Because um, my mom actively discouraged me from playing music. If it's in your blood, you got to do it. I don't think that he, I don't think I can lay that one on him. But what she did decide is if you, if you, if you don't want to be a superficial person, if you don't want to betray the people you care about, like your kid, you show up for them and you abandon this other stuff. So when I come along, now she was a wonderful classical player and I'm, I'm a rocker. You know, if you listen to me, I'm the, I, I, I can play classical music with some facility, but no one was ever going to think I was concert, concertizing material. I'm a decent guitarist, but I'm, I, I wouldn't hire me in a session for that either. Um, and my mother would listen to me play and she'd listen to me spending hours with my Beatles records and <laughs> singing Bob Dylan, trying to sound like Bob. And she, and she thought, well, he's not talented. And she probably genuinely thought that at the time. But it was also her own, what she was bringing, the baggage she was bringing. So when I told her I was going to leave Harvard for Berkeley, it must have felt to her like I was going to the dark side. I was betraying everything that she'd hoped I would be, true and an honest human being for this superficial. So... It took her, I mean, she eventually figured it out and she became incredibly supportive of my music before she died. She couldn't do it back then. So that's, um, I probably answered about five questions there. Yeah, the interesting thing to me, and I want to go back to why when you were two, your mom stopped I don't know exactly. Being musical. Did, I mean, she didn't talk to you about that? I, I, I mean, she, obvious, she, she obviously. She gave me a dozen different, she gave me about four different explanations for it, really. She'd explained uh, that, she didn't think she 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 didn't think that she could ever be anything else except a second-rate Rogers composer. Um, there, but there, none of the explanations really felt authentic to me um, because I knew I knew how good she was, and she never stopped playing. Um, I grew up listening to her music, and I, I still the pieces I've taken the trouble to learn are pieces I grew up listening to her play. Do, do you have an assumption though? It's what I said. Oh, it's what you said. Okay. That she she was trying to figure out who she wanted to be. Okay. She was in a marriage that um, it 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 was. Pro I'm sure it was already in trouble, but they didn't know it yet. Um, and she was trying to be a loving mother, and so I I, th I think she was she was conflating some really great values um, with some very harsh judgments, and and she hurt herself along the way. How does this translate into what you're doing in your life now? Um, well, let's see. The music part, I simply, you know, when, when I left Harvard for Berkeley, I never looked back in terms of music. I, I, music helps me breathe, okay. um, and I love it. And it's taken me many years to get to the point where I can, I can say, I think I've got a special talent. I, I believe in it. Um, I couldn't have said that 10 years ago, but I do now. Um, so in terms of what I do today, that's part of it. I spent many years... Um, on the film side, doing film scores, and uh, around around the turn of the century, I began to explore musical theater, 
um, and immediately found that I'm even better at that, and I love it. And so it gives me joy. I have fun doing it. And uh, that's part of it. But I wrote a... Starting out, I used to write songs. I, I aspired to being a singer-songwriter. You know, I, I loved James Taylor. I loved Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon and Dylan, of course. And uh, and also a wonderful songwriter named Dory Previn, who um, I became very close to. Uh, and I wrote a song three or four months after I got married, which was a really, I, I'll say it today looking back, and a really good breakup song called Helpless. <laughs> And I sent it to Dory, and she she wrote me a letter back almost immediately. And basically what she said is, you're really talented. You've got the goods in the world. And when you can really turn the microscope on yourself and you've got the goods in yourself, you'll really have something. Which is exactly the kind of advice that should send you to the, the piano and the guitar and writing up a storm. And right around then I stopped writing for, oh, pretty much 30 years. Stopped writing songs, personal songs. Wow. I wrote a few for my son when he was a little kid. I wrote I wrote plenty of songs for movies that were that were storytelling for a movie. But I didn't try and write personal songs. Um, and I think what was happening, I knew on some level, I told the truth in this song. I knew I knew that there were problems in this marriage from the very beginning. And it scared the shit out of me to find out what I might find out if I kept on shining that light inside. Oh, okay. So I stopped writing songs. When I when the marriage broke up, I uh, I began writing songs again. I re- actually, the first song I wrote was for my daughter, who I, I had, had said, you wrote something for, for Daniel, you ever wrote something for me? And I thought, oh, okay. And what I wrote to her was, was a, a very strong song about things that I felt she needed to know at that point. And she loved that I wrote it, but I don't think she wanted to hear the song a whole lot. But it got me started. And um, for the next few years, I sort of fantasized about, maybe I can write enough songs to have an album one day. And... But, some voice in my head still said, but you're not really a songwriter. I didn't, I didn't take it seriously. And that, that gets back to the question you asked as well. Why didn't I believe about it? If, if, if I now think I'm so damn good, how come I didn't believe in it? Uh, my answer about my mom was she loved me very much, very much. But she didn't like me in part because she didn't like herself. And there was a lot of me, in her, a lot of her in me. So... She didn't see me as an honest person. As a, as a kid, I told a lot of lies. And, and part of her dislike, her self-dislike, and, and whatever came out with me was, if, as a parent, I know if your kid tells a lie, there's a way to say it's not good to tell a lie without saying you're a liar. Right. And the way my mother approached it, the lie attached to my soul. And as I got older, it was, that's your father in you. So there was a lot of negative self-image there. And also... Um, you know, I, on, on the one hand, it never occurred to me when I started to work in the film world that it might be tough, that I might not succeed. And that was idiocy. It turns, I mean, the film business is really tough. And I, I did succeed in it. But it was, it was really tough. I mean, I paid a lot of dues. Um, but there, So there's a combination of, of unrealistic self-confidence <laughs> and at the same point, not really believing in myself. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I think what happened in the same you know, post-marriage, not only did I start to write songs and um, evolved into, into writing songs that I'm really proud of, that I think tell truths that um, I tell in, in, in a way that's my way, that's unique. Um, and it's, it's part of, it really is part of you know, my self-identity. 
Um, but in addition to evolving into that part of my self-identity, I also was a parent post-marriage, and I mentioned that time at the Meadows and how I began to understand not only the damage that my kids um, were exposed to, but how it may have affected them, but you know, looking at aspects of you know what what did keep me in that marriage for thirty years, and, and what what um, what defines what define it was love, but what define what are the elements that you can deconstruct love and it's still love, but if but when you're deconstructing it, you can look at well, one of the things I think I was drawn to, you know, that old old song that goes, "I want a girl just like the girl that married dear old dad." Well, my mother could be loving and she could also be disapproving. Um, she, I didn't know, she didn't know until until the '90s after her mother died, and she began seeing a quite good therapist didn't realize that she'd been a lifelong depressive herself. Mm. And, you know, when I was a little kid, I remember one of the great things she she was able to do for me, just instinctually, she'd come home sometimes, and I learned to be incredibly sensitive to her moods. I could tell if she was in, in, in a not good mood. She was cold, aloof, disapproving. And at some point, she learned to say to me, I'm in a bad mood, darling. It has nothing to do with you. And I'd think, oh, yeah. good. I got it. So I think... Um, that disapproval, that that critical, the controlling part of her, um, was part of what my theory about love is. In part, you you seek out what what was defined for you as home. Mm -hmm. you, you look you look to recreate what's familiar, and so if you come from a relationship with with that for a mother, you fall in love with somebody who has in a different way elements of that. If you've got um, if you're a woman and as a little girl you had a father who was abusive. Um, that may there may be a relationship between that, and if you find yourself as an adult woman in a relationship with somebody who is both a source of love and out of nowhere thwack, whether it's verbal or physical abuse, um, it you may just have gotten unlucky, but maybe you were drawn to somebody who you didn't even you you fell in love with them before a year before you saw the slightest conscious hint of this thing, but you have invisible radar. I, I think that was true for me. I think I fell in love very quickly. And it was some time before I recognized that, but before I encountered the things which I later on came to see as, as a very painful part of the relationship, I think there was an energy that some part of me got and, and picked up on long before I, could, I was conscious of it. Yeah. So tell us a bit about what you're doing now in your life. I'm remarried. I'm remarried to a wonderful woman who I'm very much in love with. And probably our first date, which was a seven-hour lunch, um, we, we discovered this conversation about trauma and damage and healing and discovered that it was, it was a huge part of both of our journeys. Um, I, I won't talk about her journey here. She talks about it freely, but I would leave that to her. But um, our, our connection was, was in part... Uh, on a soul level from the very beginning. Part of it was we were both people on a journey from damage. And we've worked through a lot of stuff along the way, um, learning about what it means to heal from that with each other. And it's not all been easy, but we've, we've come to a place where um, it's very powerful. Um, and we're still, we're still works in process. But so part of what I'm doing now is I'm in a loving relationship that 
is part of my continual journey of freedom. I, I continue to, God, that sounds like a, a new age cliche. I, <laughs> I actually mean it in a really concrete way. Um, I've been able to turn away from relationships in my life that I've recognized are and have been long for a long time toxic and painful and damaging and realized I don't have to be there. I don't have to be and I won't. And to to do that is, it's an incredible, there's a sense of elation. I mean, um, I was walking the other night with my dog and I was thinking about one of these relationships that I've stepped out from and feeling, you know, I, the opposite of, of, of pain, feeling actually a kind of uh, joy. Now, I've sent you a bunch of my songs, Dana, yes. and um, they, I, mean, I write about things like death and dying and oh, dementia and the, the Ds. And um, I, I jokingly have, have said to people that, you know, you just wait for my song about um, colonoscopies. <laughs> um, so I can't so, wait for that one. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> but 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 I do I do write. I mean, Talia has occasionally listened to to a new song and said, "Would you do you mind handing me a razor blade? I can just slip my wrist <laughs> down." Um, and you know, and I inevitably try and lighten up the no, song. That's that true point. love. Uh, it, it, this is very true love. This is wonderful love. Um, but uh, but if this, I can interrupt you just for yeah, one yeah. second, yeah. Uh, your songs may have been about difficult subjects, but they're really beautiful. Oh, thank you. So, oh, I agree. My experience was that, thank you. yeah, the content may be difficult, but the the, uh, the melodies and the lyrics and everything, just, I mean, and, you know, and I sent them to Kim and my wife, and same response from everyone. This is amazing. This oh, is really sweet. Well, so I just you. want to make sure that, I mean, I know that when you're doing it, you're obviously going to be a bit more uh, critical naturally, and, and, and curious about how other people are going to receive the, uh, you know, the information. But it's, it's, you do the subjects a great service by making them beautiful. And it's about healing. And it's not just about the, right. you know, the colonoscopy. It's about healing. <laughs> it's about healing. <laughs> no, I thank you. And, and Talia will thank you as well, because I'm, I'm, I'm really good at leaving out that part. Yeah, it's um, well, but I mean, it's really, really important because part of what, uh, why we, Kim and I started the podcast in the first place is that, we want to show that men, especially men of our generation, are capable of going deeply within themselves and taking responsibility for the things that we need to and doing everything we can to heal ourselves and to help the people in our lives heal. Right. And, and, you're, and you're doing it your way. I do it my way. And Kim does it his way. Yeah. The and they're all yeah. very d different approaches, but to the same destination. So I thank you for that. That's yeah. a really great interruption. I appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> um, but where, where I was going with that is that for the first time, I, I, I mean, I've actually not the first time. I've, I've written love songs. I've written love songs for Talia. Um, yeah. And um, we wrote a song that's very much about the journey of healing that we, uh, she read a poem that, that was the inspiration for the song. She read a poem that she wrote at our wedding called um, The Hug of Your Soul. And then um, I, I turned that into a song that I sang to her um, at our wedding. That's really our first song together. Uh, so I've, I have written some up, up and happy songs. But, um, but this was different, this idea, and I haven't written it yet, but, I, but the idea is for a song that's really an expression, a joyous shout about breaking free. Personal, I've, I've written songs about uh, a song I sent to you called Freedom From Within, yeah. um, that's an expression of the, of, of the belief that you can liberate yourself and, and, and that, that freedom from within is, is, is the goal. 
and I've written song. I, one of the other songs I sent you called "Sometimes a Monster" has a, a bridge. Uh, uh, lay it down, all that you're feeling. It's not really freedom. It's not really prison when you're holding the key. Give in for the yearning for some kind of healing. Your soul's on a journey. It needs to break free. So I've written songs that talk about wanting to get there, but this idea is one I can only write today. I'm able to write it now. A shout of joy that I'm getting there. I'm 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 in that place. I've got at least one foot in that place. Um, so for me, understanding what's happened to me, understanding with, I hope not guilt, but ownership, what responsibility I have in the lives of my children, um, and understanding that I really, I have, I have so much to be joyous about in my life, and my, my job is, is to grow, uh, part of my job is to grow. Well, one of the concepts, again, that Kim and I uh, are wanting people to start to think about is the notion of conscious introspection. Mm-hmm. And you are the living embodiment He's the epitome. He's the epitome of conscious introspection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Continues so, to be. It's very sweet. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I, I guess... Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, every, everything that Peter was saying, I'm sitting there going, yep, yep, shaking my head yes to, yeah. to all that because... The journey he he's been on is is very similar to mine. Mm. You know, uh, you know, I had a complicated relationship with with my mother as well, and, and we won't go into that. I've gone into that too many times on this podcast, but I'll have to listen. Yeah, but but anyway, a lot of that journey that you've been on, that evolution that you've that you've um, are conscious about and have felt, it's a lot of of where I am now. So. When you talk about being free and freeing that bandwidth, mm-hmm. I totally get it. Yeah. And yeah. if I can preach anything on this podcast and is to for people to listen more than once to what you've just said in this last hour here and take that to heart. Because like you said, we do have the key. It's it's we just have to do the work and we have yeah. to not fear the work. Um, and you're a living example of, of what happens I think when you do the work. One of the things that's been a gift, it, 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 I haven't had to work for this. It's just part of what I've got. But you, but you had to put in, maybe work is the wrong word to use, but you've put in effort into it. You've put in effort to, to recognize it. You've put in effort to feeling it, and some of it's not good feeling either. Oh, no, but I'm, I'm going to a new okay. idea here, which, which is I've been blessed by, I, I don't hang on to anger. I, I don't, I don't. I don't have a need to forgive people. Um, but I think that's not true for everybody. I, I think I'm just fortunate. I haven't had to work at that one. Um, but I think um, a lot of a lot of folks I know have carry a lot of anger for where they've been damaged. And it's it's preachy to say, forgive every, you know, one of the things that, one of, there's a great quote about um, uh, blame is, Blame is a poison pill that you that you take hoping the other person is going to die of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't mean to, to, to be glib about it, but I think the more you look at these people who, who may have been your damagers through this this prism I'm talking about, where you, you look and think, well, they, didn't, they didn't choose to be damagers because they didn't choose their own damage. Right. And the more you see that, the easier it is to transcend whatever anger you're holding on to. And, um, and that's also a very, very liberating thing. You also said something I wanted to go back to as well is is about 
calling the toxicity out of your life and, and not feeling that there was a sense of loss. And I, I completely understand that because, you know, I've gone through that probably the last five or six years and kind of getting rid of that toxicity, getting rid of what wasn't working for me. Right. And then in retrospect, looking back on it and thinking, boy, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. I don't, I haven't suffered this tremendous sense of loss right. from not being friends with these people right. going forward. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I feel freer. Isn't it surprising how, how things that, that you for so long can take for granted as, as facts disappear? Uh, and I'm so in my head about letting somebody down and how somebody's going to either judge or think about me that I probably waited years. Right. To, to do that just because I didn't want to, f to feel that that right. way. So. You're writing a book, uh, and I, don't, I know you talked about this early on, but you're writing a book about your family mm -hmm. lineage and, and, and heritage. Can you talk a little bit about w w that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a special book because um, I, I started off, I, I wrote an article um, for The Dramatist, which is the publication of The Dramatist Guild, which is the organization that represents authors, composers, lyricists in, in theater. Um, and I wrote a, a, a piece called My Grandfather Richard Rogers, which was motivated by the fact that the, the last few books that have come out on him, major biographies, have kind of accepted this, a, a very, they've got a, a sort of a straw man picture of him, a wax museum picture of this guy who was kind of a gray-suited businessman who was not very nice and not very warm, who just happened to write the most extraordinary music in the world. And A, I, I just always knew that there's, that's, that's a, people said that because they couldn't get a handle on they couldn't figure out who he really was. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So look at it from that no, perspective. Hey. But, you know, Stephen Sondheim, who was, who was another one of the gods, an extraordinary writer, um, and had a terrible one, one writing relationship with my grandfather. It was not good. After, right after Oscar died. Um, and it was the last time Steve wrote with somebody else being the composer, and he was raring at the bit to write his own music, and rightly so. Um, and he said famously, talking now Oscar was his mentor, as a kid, he, Oscar mentored Steve as a writer. So what he said was, Oscar is a man of finite talent and infinite soul. And Richard Rogers is a man of infinite talent and finite soul. So Stevie was not so sweet to either his mentor or my grandfather. But um, my, my feeling was always, I don't know what the hell um, finite soul is supposed to mean. But the guy who wrote the chord changes on The Sound of Music um, toward the end of his, his great years, um, those chord changes are, they don't, they, they're not pretty from central casting, they're, they're beautiful from God. So I wrote this article and began to, began to fathom who he was. And when the article was done, I had a few friends who um, said, you know, you should write the book. And uh, I set out, I began to try and write, to, to do that, but I realized I don't really I don't really want to be a biographer. That's not that's not where my interest lies. I do want I do want to reveal him, um, in a much more loving, complex way. I mean, I have I I owe him so much. Both music genes that I you know I'm really lucky to have, the gift of having grown up around that music. I did see a lot of shows as a kid. Every time there was a revival, I got to see it. Um, and he was a sweet grandfather, 
also, I grew up very privileged. I grew up getting to go to, to great schools. Um, I made a really good living as a film composer, but I always lived in places better than where I could have afforded on my salary thanks to an inheritance from my grandparents. So I've got many different reasons to feel protective of him and, and loving and not want to be silent when he's getting pilloried in the world. So I set out to do that, but these other things we've been talking about, my own journey, my own discovery, as I started to get deeper into his life, I began to, to I described my grandmother as an unloving mother. I didn't tell you some of the trauma that she came from that has a lot to do with that. Um, but the deeper I got into it, the more I began to understand things that happened that go back to her father, my great-grandfather, who I never knew because he, he became depressed after the, after the crash and, and most probably his falling from a, a balcony terrace of a Manhattan apartment was most probably a suicide, almost certainly. Um, so the more I began to look at, at these different people, I saw connections between what happened to my grandmother and what happened to my mother as a child and that aloof coldness I described when she was when she'd come home depressed and how it, that affected me, and and seeing all these things, it became such a powerful uh, way of understanding my family. And although on both sides, you know, th there are two people, especially my grandfather and my father, who were very prominent and very successful. There are others too. Mary and her son Adam Gettle um, is a, also a, a wonderful theater composer. Uh, even though these are illustrious people, and you might say, well, they're different from ordinary people. Actually, they're extraordinary, and we're all human beings. And this, what, part of what I have to accomplish in this book is, is make people, is let people read it in a way that they see it's actually a universal story. It's universal because what happens between parents and children is universal. And the messages I'm trying to convey, the story I'm trying to tell, um, can 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 give something to a lot of different kinds of people. So it's a book that, in part, it's a biography, because it does go all the way through my grandfather's life and my father's life, but it's not, it's not you know, a thousand-page multiple biography. It's, it's a book about trauma wending its way through the generations of a family, trauma, and the possibility of healing. Yeah, real, real people, real stories, mm -hmm. real emotion, and yeah. how... How we can not only understand that but to feel it, right, as well. And if I if I write it well, it'll first of all scratch an itch I, I that was planted for me as a kid in college, which is I wanted to write a book. One day I would like I would like to write a book, um, but it'll also I think it'll it'll I think people will will probably love it. People will love to read about my grandfather, and you know there are many people alive today who I hear it all the time. I love your grandfather's music. It's given me so much. Through the generations, every high school kid has done a Rogers show at some point. Well, my wife was a prime example. Yeah. So to, to be able to find out this guy wasn't just this gray, this gray two-dimensional character, oh my goodness. Um, there were things in his own heart that explained why he was able to write the music Bally High to the song Bally High mm -hmm. famously in five minutes. There were, that song, Your Own Special Dreams, Your Own Special... I forget exactly the lyric on that one. But it's... It, the song is an expression of such yearning for love and safety. Where did it come from? Deep within. And I think people will love reading about that. And I think it'll also give some people insight into um, things they can relate to in their own complex family lives. 
Well, Peter, really appreciate you being here and, and sharing the stories, not only about yourself, but but your family and, and, and your journey and where you are today. And I'll be certainly looking forward to, to reading that book as well as I'm sure a lot of our listeners. So again, thanks for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, we'll have you back again when the books when the book comes out and uh, you can promote it a bit. And I would love that. We'll go from there. We'll, we'll, I would love we'll that. Tell some more Richard Rogers stories at that time. Yeah. You got it. Thanks, Peter. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.